Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to this Lorandum panel celebrating Chapter 6 of our Generative Art Timeline, covering the decade of the 1980s. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Bauman, or uh, Monk Anthony. I'm the content person at Lorandum, and uh, my co-host today is Conrad House, Nemo Cake from Lorandum. And joining us today are some of the most prominent figures in digital art whose careers overlapped with the decade of the 1980s. Uh, we are incredibly fortunate and humbled to welcome uh, Darcy Gerbard, Copper Gillis, David M., Mark Wilson, Dan Sandin, William Latham, Stephen Todd, and Jeff Davis. Uh, today is again, all about the decade of the 1980s and generative art, but we're taking kind of a more generous view today, uh, more digital art and its predecessors. Uh, at Lorandum, I've been writing a generative art timeline and Conrad has been invaluably helping with uh, several tasks and uh, including images. And this timeline goes back 70,000 years into pre-modern history with chapter one. And we've had talks for each chapter. And this is our talk for chapter six, which we released earlier in the week. Uh, so this exercise isn't about looking back for old time's sake. Uh, it's about looking back to learn, hear from these absolute incredible pioneers and legends firsthand and take their lessons with us to today. Uh, I'm going to briefly introduce each of these incredible artists, and then they will have uh, a little time to say a few words about themselves. Uh, let's start with Darcy. Uh, Darcy is a pioneer digital artist who organized and curated the first SciGraph computer art exhibits in the early 80s. Uh, she now creates work using both the latest digital technologies and traditional fine art techniques. Uh, Darcy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, would you like to say anything more about yourself? Uh, I don't really think of myself as a generative artist, and I never thought that the program was more important than what you saw as, a, as the piece of art. And this has been uh, a long time discussion in the computer graphics field. Um, of course, I use uh, software that has been written by uh, really brilliant and early uh, pioneers. Uh, some of it was custom, some of it uh, was not uh, products that were available to buy. Uh, and today, of course, uh, particularly Photoshop really changed a lot of things. And that kind of happened in the mid 80s, I'd say, uh, when Adobe uh, got that software and uh, started with Photoshop, it changed a lot of things. And also more color became available in the mid 80s on a PC level computers. Until then, you really only had uh, eight bits of color. You only had maybe 16 colors. Um, I had a unique experience maybe. Uh, I came out of the art world in New York. Um, all the people I knew were color field painters, abstract expressionist painters. Uh, they were showing in leading galleries and having exhibits in, in major museums and things like that. And I really started I wanted to find out what the leading technology was for my generation. And I knew about uh, digital audio. Uh, I knew about electronic music. And I thought there had to be something comparable for the visual arts. 
So I went to the, um, the art library in New York City and found some things. In particular, I came across Ruth Levitt's book, uh, which was really interesting. And I tried to contact all each of the artists in that book, uh, which, and I did contact quite a few of them. Uh, at that time, I really didn't know anything about digital art or, or the, the community or who was doing anything anywhere. Uh, but um, I got involved very quickly. But I still always thought of myself as a painter. Um, I was fortunate the first uh, computer tools I used to make art, uh, the first tool I used was Alvy Ray Smith's paint system, and it was 24 bits of color, it was full color, and um, it never, I never wanted to go back to learning how to program, you know, eight bit, you know, eight bits of color or something. I wasn't interested in just having lines drawn. There were no good printers at those times. So I then spent and still spend a lot of my time in my practice figuring out how to take these digital images that I've created on a computer and get into a physical medium. Um, I also, unlike Dan and Copper and uh, quite a few of the artists working in the field, did not feel that motion and animation, uh, moving images were the whole story. I was a painter, I thought of myself as a painter. I wanted pictures, paintings, big ones, full size if possible. Yeah, that, that's something that I, we would love to get into uh, a little bit further. That's a really interesting topic, actually. Um, maybe we can uh, move on, sorry, to Copper. Uh, Copper, Copper is a, Copper Gillif is a pioneering digital artist and professor in 1980, she was the first graduate of the MFA program at the Electronic Visualization Lab at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, much of her early work was among the pioneering efforts in the nascent field of computer art and graphics. She chaired the Graph Art Show competitions in 1982 and 1983 that traveled all over the world. So Copper, uh, you are really like one of my heroes because uh, like you've been uh, such a documenter of the space and, and it's been invaluable for me. So the, really, truly, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, can you please tell us a bit more about yourself? I wanna give sort of a context history. I think the first thing I'll say is that when I was a little girl, my father was working for Bell Labs and I can remember him taking me to see these introduction of the laser and saying, this is gonna be important. And I think that, um, and I, um, I saw Bob Mallory, who is an important artist, and I saw his work at the 1964 World's Fair. Um, and then I just grew up and I got a degree in sculpture. But in 1978, I completed my first digital animation in 1979 using a Bally video game system configured with Tom DeFonte's ZGrass programming language. I programmed the piece, I saved it on an audio cassette tape and outputted it to, uh, outputted the animation to video. Um, this was, oh, there's a picture of it. Dan's ready for me. Within two years, these programs had evolved into an interactive symmetry drawing installation with the help of my friends and colleagues. And that was exhibited in the fall of 1980 at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. I sort of felt like, wow, I'm real. Um, this fall, some of the work I made during this period and in the 90s will be documented again in the LACMA Digital Witness Exhibition. 
So that's where I am now. Amazing. Yeah, thank you, Copper. And we can move on to Mark now. Uh, Mark is an American artist, author, and programmer who was part of the 1980s movement of artist programmers at the forefront of the use of computer software to create art. Uh, in the early 80s, uh, Mark purchased a microcomputer and began to learn programming after uh, training as a traditional artist. Uh, Mark, uh, he is also uh, widely exhibited around the world, including in the permanent collection of the V&A and has been exhibited at prestigious shows like SIGGRAPH as well. So uh, again, uh, welcome, Mark. Uh, could you please uh, introduce yourself a bit more and, and uh, tell us a bit more about your journey? Uh, thank you, Peter, and uh, greetings to all of my fellow panelists. Uh, I was telling my son about this event, and he said, Legends of the 80s, it sounds like some kind of rock revival concert. And I, uh, I assured him that it, it was not. Uh, anyway, uh, to give a brief uh, summary of, of my career, I, I started as a fine artist, uh, went to art school, uh, didn't know anything about computers, computer graphics, mathematics, uh, your typical artist pushing paint around on uh, a canvas. And uh, as my work evolved, it became kind of technologically uh, based. Uh, I made uh, drawings and paintings that were uh, somewhat reminiscent of architectural drawings, engineering drawings, uh, diagram, electronic uh, diagrams. So I was predisposed to an interest in uh, computers. And uh, I think that what, one of the most important aspects of, of, the, of the whole 80s in terms of uh, its relevance to art making is that the uh, explosion of the of the personal computers in the, you know the beginning with the TRS 80s, trash 80s, and Apples in the late 70s, and then moving on to uh, IBM PCs, and in in this sort of context, I was fascinated uh, with computers, and I I went out and bought one in 1980. And I got it home and I thought it was absolutely wonderful, but I didn't have the faintest idea of how I was going to use it uh, to make art. And uh, I, I knew there were a lot of paint programs out, but they didn't really interest me very much. And then I started playing around with the computer and I discovered that programming, uh, while in so somewhat intimidating, was uh, it turned out to be a very natural way for a visual artist to construct uh, uh, images. So I began programming, and uh, initially it was very rudimentary uh, stuff. And as we all know, computers are wonderful for crunching up numbers, but they 
there is no inherent way to make pictures uh, with computers. And that, that has always been a problem. It, it exists today just as much as it did uh, 40 years ago. <laughs> but there were these machines, these simple machines called pen plotters. And they were, the pen plotters produced physical art objects that were very similar to some of the work that I had done uh, earlier, very linear uh, images. So I bought, I bought a small pen plotter and uh, my work uh, has really evolved from that uh, point. And the software, my software is uh, still uh, relatively simple uh, software, but it has evolved over the years and I've I found it capable of producing a ver uh, uh, nice variety of different uh, styles and and uh, imagery. And the, the other thing I wanted to mention about the 80s is that uh, uh, I think I've met some of you at SIGGRAPH. I know, I certainly know Copper and Darcy and uh, SIGGRAPH was uh, was a wonderful institution, is a wonderful institution because uh, it started out very early with uh, the art shows and the art shows were really uh, wonderful in terms of offering uh, artists a chance to see other artists work and to exhibit their, uh, exhibit their own work. And uh, it served as an important forum, I think, for, for all of us uh, as a way to increase our knowledge and stimulate our ideas uh, about art making. Yeah, I think that's a really good point is, is how important those early SIGGRAPH shows are and were. And uh, that's why, I mean, I can't believe how fortunate we are to have both uh, Copper and Darcy here today. Uh, let's us continue with the introductions. Um, the, the next person who, uh, again, I cannot believe this here is David M. Uh, also, originally a painter, David is a digital art pioneer known for his early work with pixels and groundbreaking creations at NASA's Jet Propul uh, Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. His innovative contributions have been internationally recognized and exhibited in museums worldwide. So, David, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you uh, briefly say hi and, and tell us a little more about yourself? Sure. Well, hello to everybody. And uh, it's an honor to be here with all you guys. It, it, is, it is bringing back the 80s, not quite bringing, putting the band back together, but it, it really has been a lot of history that uh, a lot of us have shared. And uh, so a little about myself. I, I started, uh, uh, like some others here, uh, as a painter art background. Then uh, when I was uh, 22 in 1975, uh, I wound up at a Xerox Research Park and saw uh, pixels for the first time. Pixel was not part of my vocabulary. The word digital was not part of my vocabulary. I really didn't know that any of this world existed. I'd been working for uh, about a year in a studio in San Francisco doing analog video synthesis. And so the idea of artists and machines working together uh, was very much something I was pursuing. And uh, give a shout out here to uh, Dan. Dan, you were a very early inspiration to me. It's somebody who had really put those two things together 
and uh, what Namjoon Pike was doing. So this was all still in the analog world, but it was, yeah, there's uh, electronic information out there. And we as artists in this generation, this is the time to really jump on that. So I got it immediately and, and I saw this is the future of art. Why other people didn't see it at the time is beyond me to this day, but uh, it was clear to me and that started a long journey uh, that yeah, it took me to JPL, took me a lot of other places. But since we're talking about the 80s, that was, uh, I think, a very important transitional period of time for the entire medium, for all of us as individuals, and also uh, in the larger, uh, really social cultural uh, aspect of uh, human consciousness. Because, you know, it's hard to think of it from the point of view that we're at today, but just as I have never heard the word digital, neither had anybody else you know outside of for a few hundred practitioners on the entire planet this was unknown territory and so what happened in the 80s through a uh, sigraph uh i mean you know what what uh, uh darcy and copper did with those early shows was like so important in terms of exposing to the world that this stuff existed at all and so it was during that period really you know you could say from about i think 1981 which is I think, Darcy, when that first show that you did happened, uh, up until, let's say, 1990, a whole bunch of things happened one right after the other. Uh, and uh, a couple of people mentioned personal computers. Like, yeah, right. You know, I, I started working with a, a mainframe at Triple I. I was working on a Deck 10 in uh, 1976. By 1990, I was working on a Mac 2FX in my own studio. That is an incredible revolution to have happened in a 10-year span of time. And so there was, there was that, uh, the fact that we went from no such thing as uh, commercial software to where that was just something that you could go out, you could buy a computer, and you could buy software to put on it. That was so radical. I have like a thousand stories. I won't get into them now, but one I'm just remembering is uh, and, and thinking of SIGGRAPH, SIGGRAPH sponsored an event, I don't remember when it was, maybe 1983-ish at uh, Caltech. And, and it was a, 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 a sponsored by National SIGGRAPH. A whole bunch of really great people came. And uh, afterwards, some of us went out to dinner and uh, we were walking up uh, Lake Street in Pasadena. It's about 11 o'clock at night. I think I was maybe with Jim Blinn, Jim Kajia, maybe uh, Vibeka Sorensen was there, maybe Ed M. Schriller, just a small group of us. And we walked by an egghead software, which none of us had seen before. And we all just like stopped and looked at that store and said, this is a store that sells nothing but software. And we all just burst into hysterical laughter. We could not believe that we were looking. Evolution to me of the 80s in a nutshell, as we went from a place where it only existed in these institutions that you had to get access to and the whole thing to the point where you could like walk down Lake Street, walk in a store and buy a paint program, mind blowing. So that's the transition as I see it. And then, you know, on to today where, you know, these days I'm just like the last couple of years deeply immersed in AI. We're living on another planet now, especially in terms of generative art, which is, which is I, I, your, your guys focus a lot. Well, thank you so much for that uh, wonderful context. Uh, yeah, like when you when you put it that way, when you when you start at the beginning and and, and look at the end, maybe we can do that a bit more later. Uh, it is such a remarkable 
uh, stretch of time. And so happy we get to uh, bring it to the fore and celebrate it today. But the next person I'll introduce is William Latham. Uh, he is a pioneering figure in generative art who revolutionized the field with his mutator uh, evolutionary art, which he developed at IBM in the late 80s. Uh, his work, characterized by organic forms generated through innovative software, uh, garnered international acclaim and has been exhibited globally as well. Uh, then he transitioned to rave music and game development and his boundary pushing uh, creations continue to captivate audiences uh, in those fields and to today. Uh, so William, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Okay, so fantastic to be on the panel with everyone. I guess with the 80s, my entry point is 1987, when age 25, I became an IBM research fellow for the next six, six years at their scientific center in Winchester in the south of England. And there I started my collaboration with Stephen Todd, who's talking in a minute. And I guess I, through IBM, I got access to big IBM mainframe computers. And from an early age, previous five years, I've been very interested in evolutionary systems, rule-based art. And working with Stephen Todd, we implemented these kind of evolutionary ideas in terms of software. So I guess I was kind of capitalizing on all the hard work done by Jim Blinn, uh, Perlin, and all this. So I could just see the potential for taking photorealist techniques and processes and applying it to organic and strange forms. So, so these strange sort of forms kind of lurk out of the darkness. And in particular, working with Steve, and I got access to a CSG renderer, which uh, you could do billion operations, which is very nice for kind of sculptural effects. And then we were able to develop this form grow language in ESME, which enabled us to uh, evolve organic forms that were taking stealing geometry from nature and we'd re-implement it in form grow. So I had a luck the luxury of being able to craft my, this, my own software and that's a philosophy that I've maintained ever, ever since. Um, the yeah, SIGGRAPH definitely was important. You know, we showed the sequence and evolution of form at SIGGRAPH in Dallas, and it was, you know, it was, it was just a fantastic event. And the art show I first showed in 1987 was brilliant. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm quite late in the 80s, um, capitalizing on everything that everyone's done. Definitely great meeting, David. You know, Transjovian Pipeline, 1979, was one of the reasons why I got, in, got interested in computers. The colors, I love the colors, the textures. So I guess, you know, I've capitalized on all the hard work that's gone before and, you know, longer term collaboration with Stephen is, you know, still going on later on. But my slight challenge as an artist now is people like the old stuff, do they like the new stuff as, as much? You know, you feel like you're competing a bit with yourself. So I'm doing a lot of black and white work at the moment. It seems to be going down really well in China. So I'm doing a lot in China at the moment. And I've had a lot of fun in VR. So that, that's probably, I've gone over time, but 
I'll pass you back. Well, yeah, thank you so much, William. And I think yeah, it's a really good point that we have so many different people here today and their careers overlap with the 80s in, in lots of different uh, interesting ways. And I think let's move on to Stephen and, and then we'll we'll get to Dan and Jeff. Uh, Stephen is was a key collaborator, still is a key collaborator with William. He co-developed the groundbreaking mutator evolutionary art uh, system with William at IBM in the late 80s. And their innovative alternative evolutionary software system uh, has been paving the way for uh, intricate 3D forms that are now ubiquitous. So, uh, Stephen, again, thank you so much for joining us. And can you please tell us a bit more about yourself? Uh, what a pleasure to have you. I came from a maths and then computing background, sort of actually beginning in database as my main thing. And then in the early 70s, sorry, the early 80s, we're doing a lot of data visualization, working with scientists and molecular graphics, which in fact we're still doing, again, even with some of the people who we originally worked with back in the 80s. Um, and that meant we'd put together both geometric program, easy geometric programming and high quality computer graphics based on CSG, but also, as William said, totally relying on lots of the stuff that had gone before for making it photorealistic. And then our manager suggested that this was all quite fun. It would be, he met William. When did you meet Peter Quarren and William? In 1986. Yeah. <laughs> and so Peter brought William to the lab and we had, we had the right programming environment, hardware environment and so on. Still very limited. One of my favorite quick stories is we were limited to eight bits, not eight bits per channel, but eight bits total for the color. So we got quite good at reducing down and really optimizing the error diffusion and stuff. And our first exhibition, somebody was looking at the prints, looking at all the very fine grained texture and you get a result of that and say, I really like the way you've got this lovely texture in just sort of, we don't have that anymore. We're doing it all in eight bits or more. But, um, How wonderful that you did end up uh, rekindling that collaboration Stephen, and we can move on to uh, Dan now. Dan Sandin uh, is a globally renowned pioneer of electronic art and visualization. Uh, he served as the director of the legendary EVL, the Electronic Visualization Lab, uh, and professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, with Copper. Uh, from his groundbreaking work on scientific visualization to creations like the Sandin image processor and his visionary work on virtual reality theaters like the Cave, his contributions have earned him acclaim and support at prestigious institutions, including the Museum of Modern Art. So, wow, Dan, what an absolute honor and privilege to have you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, could you please tell us uh, a bit more about yourself? Yeah, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm famous for not unmuting when I start talking in the circles of my video conferencing. Uh, so behind me is uh, is a computer. It's a uh, analog um, computer that processes video images in real time. Uh, and that was really from the early 70s. Um, in the 80s, uh, we uh, first of all, I'd like to say that I've 
constantly worked with uh, Tom DeFonte in doing all of this stuff. Um, and we ran an operation which generated hardware for artists to use and software for artists to use. Um, and uh, we're, we're supportive and part of a very rich artist community in Chicago that did an amazing amount of, of work. Um, so this is an early Woody box. Sorry, the framing is not great. Um, and that was uh, uh, the work that uh, uh, produced, uh, that was a device that could produce animation. It had, could hold 16 frames, uh, but you could do these additive animations where you'd start with something and then keep adding it. Um, this is a frame from uh, Jane Veter work. Um, and, uh, and this was a case where the, this part went through a nice cycle of walking and then other stuff was added and changed um, and onto videotape. But that was the beginning of the 80s. The machines looked like this and the uh, graphic qualities kind of looked like that. At the end of the 80s, uh, when I was working in this area, uh, this was using one of the, this was a desk side supercomputer, which now would be thought of as a GPU. Um, and uh, producing work of uh, many more flexible graphic qualities. You have shadows, you have highlights, you have rich imagery. But I must say, when I look at this work by Jane Veter, I'm completely amazed by it every time I watch it. Um, and uh, it's a similar length work to this one. Now, of course, I think this is a great piece of work too, but uh, I, both of them give me the same kind of wow factor and just like that's an amazing piece of work feeling from across all of those technological steps yeah that, that's incredible and i uh, i asked jane to join us uh, unfortunately she wasn't able to um but uh what uh what a demonstration again of the, the changes throughout the, the decades so thank you dan and uh we have our introduction uh we're gonna wrap these up with another uh, unbelievable guest who's joining us today, and that is Jeff Davis. Uh, he's an artist, an AI researcher at the University of the Arts, London. He explores the ethical dimensions of computer-generated art. Uh, he's got a diverse background in electronic arts, psychology, and counseling. Uh, Davis is also an innovator and educator. He founded Story Software and Micro Arts, and he is a friend of Lorandum. He is helping to contribute to the uh, the timeline that we're celebrating and we're talking about today. And uh, he is uh, also just a great artist. We'd uh, really like to extend a warm welcome to Jeff for joining us. So thank you, Jeff. Uh, would you like Hello. to uh, say a bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here this evening. Um, it's actually after midnight where I am, uh, which is great. Uh, so um, in the well, basically, I had a background in um, my university degree was in psychology. Uh, but at the time, I had a band, a musical band, and we used to do mixed media shows. So I was quite used to working with quite old fashioned, very heavy video decks, which I think were umatic at the time. Um, and processing images and whatnot with music. So after, that, after university, I moved to London and got involved with the art scene there, uh, which was London Video Arts and also mainly the London Filmmakers Co-op, which is quite a, was quite a lively scene. 
Um, and there was all arts. There was no money involved. It was all structuralist film. There was people like Stan Brackage were very popular and you'd watch, you know, some abstract film for like an hour and that would be entertainment. So it was very, very abstract, very hardcore kind of image based scene with sound. There's always been some soundtrack. So I did a bit of work there. Um, now in the to pay my way in those days after university, I didn't go into psychology. I got a job as a commercial programmer. So I was programming on mainframes to start with, a Univac 1100, quite a famous machine. We used to write the code with a pencil and then get it edited by people and we'd get the printouts back with the corrections on and it could cycle through that. We didn't even see a monitor until several of these sort of editing phases had gone through. And we hardly ever saw the computer because of course it was in a different room. But eventually, um, I, I didn't really like that kind of work. I was co coding COBOL, which is a business language for a big organization. You know, it's great, but not really me. So I went abroad, got published, writing some fiction. So I was in a kind of arty mood. Um, and then the microcomputer came out in about 84. And this was this incredible machine of Sinclair Spectrum, which is literally as big as a paperback. And I was so used to working with really big machines that this thing was like this incredible toy that I could just you know, code anything I wanted. And the whole machine was in that little box. You could plug it into a TV set, which was another big factor in the accessibility. You only had to buy the basically the computer and then you didn't have to buy a monitor. So all these things were going on. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, I know about London Video Arts, I know uh, London Filmmakers Court. So I thought I'd set up a computer equivalent with micro arts. So that's how micro arts, that was the inspiration. And I knew a lot of people in doing similar things or working with video or film, you know, sound. So we put together this whole project and I actually programmed most of it myself. So I did a lot of generative art and which I did because I was a programmer. So it was very natural for me to code, you know, properly code with bits and bytes, some actual graphics. Uh, so I did a whole series of graphics pieces. I did a text generator I don't know whether anybody's heard of Gierk Back in this crowd. Um, he's a curator, but he said that the text generator was an early version of ChatGPT, yeah, which might be overstating it, but it was 1985. So this was quite a while ago, a story generator program came out through MicroArts. And eventually um, it didn't really, we were posting data sets. Somebody mentioned data sets. We were posting tapes to people and it was quite a community going on, but it wasn't really making any money. So, um, Prestal, which was Teletext, asked us to put all of our material on their early networking system. So we put the whole lot onto Prestal in the UK. And I think in Canada, America, there's another one, but Minitel was the one that was in Europe. So this was a pre-internet sort of networking bulletin board system that came out through uh, TV signals. And you just have a modem and get it off your TV signal. So that was all kind of networking. Now, in terms of very, very briefly, because I know I'm going on a bit. Uh, 80s for me was, you know, mainframes where you wrote in with a pencil and then this whole weird system doing big programs. Then I worked on some minis, Vax minis I worked on for a while, then the microcomputer. But by the end, by 1988, I was working in an art college in Sheffield, back to Sheffield, and they had um, Apollo workstations, which were sort of state-of-the-art graphic machines, just like modern machines now, really, just that, you know, the backups weren't as easy to do and stuff like that. But we, we were doing 3D animation surface modeling, solid modeling. We had SDRC ideas, which is what they modeled the space shuttle on. And all this was 88. You know, that all happened so quickly, eight years, nine years, you know. Um, so the gear we had at Sheffield at the end of the decade was just revolutionary. And that was mainly the hardware changes that came in. That's what 
fueled the software changes. There was such a big expansion in hardware in that period. So, I mean, I think you mentioned about it being like a medieval period where people were holding the flame, but I don't know. I think it actually did change. I think one quick point about AI, we're in a similar period now, I'd say. So many changes are going to happen around sort of now and onwards. Thank you so much for the introductions from everybody and apologies if it ran a bit longer, but I think it's really nice that we get kind of these anecdotal references from each and every one of you. It's very rich in of itself. It's probably more important than any questions Peter and I could uh, come up with, but I think we could probably start by maybe one broad question that we can kind of just ask the crowd. If anybody wants to jump in, feel free to mute or unmute yourself to, to talk about it, but it's been something that we've kind of referenced already. Uh, especially David M talking about how like the early 80s we had these very large mainframe computers where you weren't even in the same room as the computer necessarily and then we get to the late 80s 89 88 where we have very personalized PCs that are pretty accessible in terms of hardware hardware and software development um I want to maybe add on to this because something we, we we talk about a lot in the 60s and 70s is this natural public stigma against kind of computer art art in computers in general with this overbearing machine that in some ways felt very scary to a lot of people. Um, does anyone maybe want to expand on how the stigmas of machines or this fear against machines have changed in the 80s? Sure, I, you know, this is a, a topic I've certainly uh, thought about, experienced from the first hand, I'll bet everybody here has as well, but from my own personal perspective, it was, uh, I, I might've mentioned this when I was talking about ZRS, I just couldn't believe that everyone didn't see it, you know, how obvious it was that this was going to change everything. Well, the word that you use, scary. People were scared in those days. It's very difficult today to understand the mindset of the international world culture coming out of the 60s, in the 70s. You know, there was the whole thing about the bomb. Technology was going to come out and, you know, crush your consciousness, mash your toes. IBM is evil. They're out to get you. And yet there was also this love affair with technology that was going on. You know, electric guitars, Buddy Holly, you know, the first steps on the moon, NASA. You know, so people were like jazzed and they were freaked at the same time and didn't quite know where things were going to fall. And so when these images and also music came out at this time, it turned the consciousness of what was going on of like, hey, wow the computers can actually be cool. It's a creative device. And so that was a huge mindset. And I think the general public was completely open to it. And so I got to experience that. You know, a lot of my images, you know, have been credited with helping people see that this was a door opening, not, you know, a horrible medieval grate that was, that was gonna, you know, mash and kill and do horrible things. So that was one really big aspect of it. The other thing was, and other people may have comments about this, was the art world, unlike the general public, just couldn't get it. You know, it wasn't until very recently, from my perspective, that finally the art world has jumped on the bandwagon and they're all excited and there's shows and blah dee da dee da But I'll, I'll just wrap up by saying one of the things that was really a problem was textual. And that is that the term that was used in those days for this kind of work wasn't digital art or whatever we call it today, it was computer graphics. And in the art world, that combination of those two words were like anathema. You know, the word computer, you're out of the room. Even though they loved video art, video art was accepted. And that's a very interesting discussion too. Uh, but when you took computer and graphics, which were looked down on in the art world, it was like, forget about it. 
you're not playing at this party. So uh, uh, Rebecca Allen, I, I was talking to her a while ago, made the comment that it wasn't that the art world didn't accept us at all, but it's like we were in an art ghetto. And that's pretty much the way it worked in the art world from, from my point of view. Others may have experienced it differently. I just had a couple comments. So I mentioned in my introduction that um, I had this interactive installation at the Museum of Contemporary Art and this well-known critic, um, one of the most um, funniest statements that he made in talking about the work, and he wasn't totally negative, but he did say that the use of the computer destroyed the contemplative aspects of art making. Now, clearly this man hadn't waited for anything or had had no concept of how long it took you to make something. The other thing that happened is I was interviewed for the evening news by Bob Surratt in 1980. And they ended up saying that they thought that maybe this work was gonna take over the networks because it was interesting. So there were these two very different responses um, to to the work of that time. And that, this was 1980. Yeah, if I could just jump in with a response to that real quick. You're, you're, you're so right on with that, Copper, because I'm remembering that the big discussion in those days, believe it or not, wasn't, you know, is it good art? It's, but is it art? Is it art at all? And, you know, how do you deal with that? As, as Copper just said, I mean, you know, you, you, you do your blood, your sweat, your tears, you're in the trenches, you do this work, you hope it will be received in some way. And they say, no, it, it's not even in the game. So that was what we were dealing with at that time on the conceptual level. Yeah, I just got a quick comment. I was working in an art college at the end of the 80s where we had all these 12 uh, big workstations and we had mainly design students using it who would make the classic uh, teapot, you know, do all this smooth rendering and whatnot. And they were learning CAD, you know, computer-aided design, basically. Um, but we did have quite a few fine art students would just make their way into the room because it was open access and I used to run the lab. And they do all sorts of really unusual things with it. that they, they make mesh patterns and then, you know, somehow photograph them and then use them in their art. And it was a really creative period. And those students didn't really have any knowledge of the field. because There was no knowledge of the field at the time or hardly any in England. Anyway, the Computer Arts Society wasn't operating at the time. I mean, MicroArts was a kind of tiny version of that, I suppose, putting out information. But that, that was really short lived. Uh, so this fine art students would just come in and experiment and they were very open-minded i thought so i think that it was the art world rather than the artists who weren't interested you know well i wanted to say um that the art world just didn't know anything about it in the 80s uh they were unfamiliar with it um in my world in new york in the art world uh where we would always we would go every uh all the time to ex exhibitions at the galleries and at the museums and, and so on, there was no anything about computer art. And what happened as people found out that I was using computers to make art, which started in 79, was that I'd walk into the room and people would like kind of move away from me as if I almost had some awful disease or something. And when you talk to them, they actually were afraid that the computers were gonna replace the, them in some way. The artists were feeling this. Um, very few of the people I knew in that world were willing to even talk about or look at any art that was made with computers at all. Um, I had the opportunity to work with Cynthia Goodman and had the idea to do an exhibition, a big computer art exhibition in the mid 80s uh, that we uh, 
started, we had it uh, initiated at the Everson Museum where I had been doing some things and IBM funded it and we were able to travel it, but it was, and it was shown as a big art exhibition in New York at the IBM Museum, but the IBM, IBM had a huge art collection and it was, they were very well respected for that collection, but they were not one of the recognized real art venues either. They weren't a museum, they weren't a gallery or anything like that. I had the opportunity to take Clem Greenberg to through that entire exhibition. And after he looked at all the work, I said to him, as, as uh, uh, has been said, you know, is it art? Because that was the big question everyone's asking. Is this art? What is this? Is it art? We, of course, didn't even know how to talk about it. The computer wasn't, in the terms of what I was doing, wasn't making the art. It was the input from the artist that was controlling and directing the machine to make the art. But that, that wasn't understood by really anyone. And I asked him if it was art, and he said, it might be art, but a lot of it is, is bad art. And I think there was a lot of stuff made that just wasn't that great, you know, either. So yes, we're all struggling to make art, and some of our work uh, turned out to be good art. But there was still this very, um, oh, wow factor. It's sort of like, I, rec I, I sort of identified this with one of my first uh, classes of students. The first work they handed in, I looked at the slides and I put them next to the work they had submitted to be accepted to the MFA program. And the quality of the work was not equal. And I, I, and I sort of said, you know, Everyone, the first thing they see when they did with the computer was sort of this oh wow factor because they could do it. And it was almost more like uh, a dance, you know, the dancing bear that you could do it at all. And it took a little more time, I think, for artists to get into the tool and really understand and be able to make it their own and start making the same quality work they would make with any tools once they got more professional at it. I think that's a perfect response, Darcy, and great insight on like some of the shows that you were helping together and the responses of people that you kind of walk through these shows. Uh, you kind of have firsthand experience on a lot of these public kind of outcries sometimes or responses to it. And then, Dan, I see you're unmuted now, so you want to add in your, your thought? Yeah, as long as we're beating up on the art world, I would like to point out that the acceptance of photography went through a similar thing. So it isn't really an issue about uh, computers in general. It's a, either an issue about you know, the art world being, you know, a bunch of uh, very hard to move people. Um, and, uh, uh, and you know, as late as 1960s, when I started to kind of um, uh, work in an art school, there, I, I mean, photographers had won the battle. Everybody agreed that it was art, but there was still discussion about it and it had to do with them, you know, using an instrumentality instead of, you know, somehow stuck with their hands. So. Um, but I, I kind of disagree with Darcy on the quality front because some of this early work that was done out is was is still completely amazing. And although as a community we grow and get better and better, but some of that early work still stands up completely. Oh, I agree. Some of the early work does stand up. There's no question. Find the same thing, right, with any other medium, whether it's film or whether it's theater or exactly. photography. Exactly. You know, some of it's great and a lot of it is just out there. Yeah, I can add quickly. I, I definitely agree with the comment about computer graphics, that killer phrase. Computer art, yes. I think the real problem is 
um, the audience. Like when I first showed, I had an exhibition called Conquest of Form that started off the Alfini Gallery, nice fine art gallery, and it toured for four years. But by the end, the venues that wanted to take the show were mass mass public venues like the Natural History Museum, the Deutsches Muse Science Museum in Munich. And so the audience was not your art crowd. It was the Joe public. And they were, they'd stand in front of my big Sivachrome prints. They'd have their photos done. And these were not people that were going to art galleries. There was a big shift in the audience. And then I can remember having a, a meeting with a number of art world directors and they asked me a key question they said you know your mutator software can it produce millions of images and i said yes it's got the potential <laughs> even 10 millions you know and they, and they said what and they said well you know in the art world it's all about rarity we in fact don't want artists to produce too much work but your computer can churn these images out indefinitely and so there was a big mismatch. I didn't get on well with the directors because I accused their sculptors of being like cavemen chiseling. I said it was very primitive and the future of the world is computers, not just chiseling rocks. Um, they definitely didn't like that. But I think it's really working out who your audience is. And late in the 90s, you know, I really engaged with the, you know, the much bigger audience. And I think that was the challenge. Maybe this minting process has kind of brought the rarity value back into the frame and the randoms doing some great work and maintaining quality in that space but there's it, a big cultural shift and i think it's one always heart you know harks back to the art world but the audience is much bigger for this work and much more ex exciting the art world is an industry and there are pieces of it there are the artists the galleries the museums then the auctions kind of came in and, and sort of squeezed a lot of the galleries out more recently. And um, I think, I know one of the big issues that I keep coming up against is that the people who you might want to help you sell this artwork just don't know how to talk about it. They don't feel comfortable really presenting it. A lot of it, if you have to plug it in or it requires any technology, that's also a big, uh, has been a big issue I think the 80s, none of that was sorted out. I mean, it's still a problem today. People want to know, for me, what size is that picture? And I say to myself, well, it could be, the aspect ratio is what it is, but it could be any size, it's digital. Well, you can't, there's no way to say this to someone who's looking to get something for their home. You say to them, you can do that in a commission situation, but in the 80s, there was just no way to explain the options that people even had to acquire this work. Yeah, that's, that's a really great comment, I think, Darcy, about uh, not knowing how to contextualize the work. Because yes, there, there were people who are absolutely against it, you know, hook, line, and sinker. We all, we all have our stories. But I remember a conversation I had once, I don't know when it was, it might have been in the early 90s with uh, Holly Solomon, and if any of you remember her, she had a well-respected yeah. gallery in new york and some mutual friends introduced us and she said gee you know i really like what you're doing she said but i don't know how to talk about it i don't know how exactly. to i just don't understand it at its roots and so i'm uncomfortable exactly. around that in a professional sense and i i got that i thought exactly. that was a very honest response they actually look at my work 
They like it. They love. It. But even when they, they exhibit in their galleries, they don't. They don't, and their staff just have no idea what to how to bring someone to it and 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 explain anything or say anything. And you know what's interesting about that too, I, I think, is that video art was so well accepted because I think that generation of curators perhaps grew up with television, so it was Maybe. in their comfort zone, and they were able to promoted and what worked against computer art in many ways was when it came to the museum world and so forth, it would be thrown to the video curators who actually didn't understand it at all. And I think that was one of the things that made it difficult to move forward was the wrong people were the ones who were put in a decision-making position. That's changed now. But. but with this AI, we have the same field that, that, that AI is going to replace people. Yeah. Just one quick thing. Yeah, and is it art? The media, you know, when I was putting out micro art stuff, we were sort of competing with the games industry. That was the idea. We had, you know, cassettes of art rather than cassettes of games. But you know, I never saw it as being a print thing or a physical thing at all. I mean, it was never printed until 2020 for a show in a retrospective in Leicester through the Computer Arts Archive with Sean Clark. But it never even occurred to me to print it. Uh, it was just live art coming, you know, generated by the micro, and you put it on BBC Micro and Spectrum, and then it ended up on a network. And it was never a physical thing, and it never even occurred to me that it could be. Really, I didn't. You could the only printer you could buy in those days was a tiny thermal printer, with a kind of I think it's ten Which centimeter roll. I mean, who's going to do that? I I've always been struck by uh, like like many of you have recounted by the. Uh, uh, I've experienced the antagonism and the indifference of the uh, art world, and I've always been struck by the irony of uh, the art world in the sense that it has always uh, sort of relished the avant-garde and uh, produced all sorts of strange and weird things uh, to see in the gallery, <clears throat> but at the same time, the art world has a very conservative aspect uh, to it and is very uh, uh, unopen to uh, experiencing certain types of new experiences. Like Dan was saying, <clears throat> it, the experience is similar to photography's uh, difficulties in uh, uh, establishing itself as a legitimate uh, visual uh, form. It's not just digital art. If you think about, we all, I mean, growing up, we would hear that the, um, you know, Picasso and the uh, Fauves and all these French artists and so on were not accepted by the Academy and nobody would buy their stuff. And it dawned on me eventually that the Academy is academia and it is all of the universities and all the people trained by the universities and all the people getting jobs in the galleries and the museums who are trained in the universities. And these are the people who want to believe that they want to find the most innovative things and this and that and the other, but they're all coming from this academic uh, place where they only can really go and see in directions they've learned about. And they miss everything, they always miss something really new. I'm not sure I agree about this this thing about academia. Having been in a university for close to 40 years, 
um, the, the people who work in museums come out of the art history department and they barely acknowledge the people who are in the fine arts departments. And um, that, that education that's going on there is really quite different. Um, and so, and I think that their attempt to either in the art history areas to either use new technology to teach their subject matter or even to be able to experience for instance, my VR pieces, they felt that they were games and so they should bring their children to see this work that was not at all aimed at children. <laughs> that they're, they, they hear VR, they see VR, they think children. And these are the people who are moving into these curator positions. Jumping back to the 80s, just to reminisce a bit more <laughs> about that, that period, I guess it's worth the tail end of the 80s when I was at with SIGGRAPH, et cetera. There was a lot of interesting stuff happening with VR, like the legible city piece by Shaw. And then there was the A-Life crowd, you know, Carl Sims, the Dawkins stuff. It was a very interesting phase. So you've got like the early 80s, you've got the mid 80s, and then the tail 80s, you get A-Life. And also precursors some of the AI stuff that's happening now where creative control is passed over to the computer and back to the artist again. So when you're looking at the 80s, I think, you know, like there are probably three phases. Um, and at the tail end of the 80s, the dominance of SIGGRAPH starts to shift to places like Arts Electronica, ICEA. There's a kind of broadening out. And as probably computer art becomes more popular, um, but, you know, definitely a very interesting period of time. And, you know, SIGGRAPH up to that point had been a quite competitive each year. Everyone would turn up with their new paper or their algorithms. And they have a bit of foot video to go with it. And it was like, it was, you know, all these really bright people competing. You know, that's what fueled SIGGRAPH. But by the end, there was a shift. And, I, you know, I think that was very interesting. And that kind of lays a lot of the groundwork, what comes next. Yeah, and I think we can probably hand this over to Peter to move on to maybe a next question. And also, apologies as this has already went over time, but this is a very uh, thoughtful discussion. If anyone has to obviously head out uh, for any reason, feel free to just kind of drop off without any saying anything. But if you want to stick on for a little bit more, we can ask maybe a couple more questions. Um, the discussion is very fruitful, and it's been awesome so far. So I'll let Peter kind of take it from here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have a million questions, but maybe I, I'd like to hear from Stephen, and, and maybe we can direct open this up to everybody after that. But uh, so, and, and this relates a bit to what you were saying, William. But uh, so, I called the chapter of the '80s. I called it the the PC era, the personal computer era. Uh, so, I'm wondering, uh, do you agree with that title, chapter? Uh, what would you have called it, Stephen? I'm afraid I've got to rush now, and so I haven't time to answer that. I, I, okay. I can answer it for you, Stephen. No worries, Thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. It was so lovely to have you. Yeah, thank you so much, Stephen. So I would call the 90s the PC era. You know, I think everyone was still getting the most out of supercomputers, you know, Kawaguchi was working with Nippon Electronics, Carl Simpson was thinking machines. You know, anyone who was doing heavy duty work had to get into a corporate environment. I think the PCs came later, you know, definitely for me, 
you know, I did the organic package for PC, but that was into the 90s. I think was in the 80s, there was still a lot of innovation. Other people may have a different view, but I, yeah, I, you know, and also in you know, the 80s, the internet was still mainly within corporations. Um, the 90s is, you know, the age of cyberculture. That was a different era. The PC comes with that. I have to ag agree with uh, William's comments there because uh, I had that same experience. I mean, I loved PCs. I started building my own machines as early as the 70s, which were essentially personal computer, and I followed it. I owned a bunch of them in the 1980s. I used it for writing and all of that. But when it came to making art, for my purposes, they weren't there yet. It was really at the beginning of the 90s where things really turned around for that. And same deal as you just said with the internet, I can still remember the first time I started sending pictures to magazines and things by sending JPEGs over the web. And it was just mind-blowing. No more slides, no more FedEx, no more any of that. So there were those sorts of revolutions. And so the, the, the transition to PCs definitely happened during the 80s. But the actual manifestation for artists, at least for me, on a real-time basis, was the 90s. And I'll just add one last tag onto that, was as late as 1979, I remember I did a talk in uh, uh, in, in, in Berkeley uh, with uh, John Whitney Sr. and Ed, Ed Catmull. And afterwards, I got together at Stanford with yeah. some computer musicians to talk about things. And the discussion came up of, will we see real PCs in our lifetime? In our lifetime? And these were highly you know, knowledgeable people. And would there be a, such a thing as the internet where all human culture would be available? And I made a bet with them that in the year 2000, I could walk into a room to a personal computer that would be a portable and download a particular uh, piece of Irish literature. That was the bet. And that happened that year in 2000. So it was really the 90s, I agree, that, that were the transition point for that. All of the the you know building blocks were there in the 80s, but the real manifestation in people's and artists' lives was right after that. The, the computers used in art college in 1988 were high-end workstations, proper computer graphics machines with huge monitors and all the rest of it. They're very expensive. They certainly weren't a personal computer that a, a normal person would use. And it yeah, it was later in the in the 90s that the, the PCs came out in the 80s. I used to work had a bit of work. Uh, after Microsoft's networking PCs, the original IBM, I think it was XTs we were using. They were a PCs, XTs, and ATs were the three first IBM machines, and they were going into the dealing rooms, the, the um, market trading dealing rooms in London. And a lot of people had worked networking. People like me were kind of networking these things for people like IBM. I mean, the Prudential Insurance had an, a mainframe in the insurance company looked after by IBM, but they didn't know anything about the IBM PC. So they had to hire a micro person, me, in other words, to go in and network the whole system for the dealers. And even then it was a fairly primitive, but previously they were using bits of paper, you know, to pass their sales back and forth. And all that was in the mid right. and, 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 and not to say that artists weren't using Apple IIs and yeah. all kinds of, you know, uh, the DRS. There were, there were many devices that artists were using. I just want to say that, um, I'm sorry. You know, I completely disagree with that. I went through four different um, personal computers between 1978 and um, 1990. You know, I have an extensive exhibition record from that time. I used these computers for animations, installations, and the I, you know, the 90s is just a continuation. 
We all played with PCs. I mean, they were wonderful, but it depends what you were trying to do, of course. This is a good point, a good transition, because I'm happy to open it up if you want to ask any questions to each other at this point or bring up any topics that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, um, my question, um, you know, you gave me four, four questions. <laughs> and the one that I was interested in was number four which is did you feel there was less uh, gender bias in the 80s as grant taylor's article which references you seems to indicate it apparently masculinized soon after was this your experience copper <laughs> and um i don't know if there's a whole nother part to it so maybe you can read it yourselves i i think you covered most of it but the, the question is do you feel there was less gender bias in the 80s as an article that I shared by Grant Taylor, uh, who who interviewed several computer artists at that time. Uh, yeah, that including, he, he, including including he, 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 he interviewed myself. And I had a couple comments about this. One, I was um, in a really supportive community in Chicago and I didn't feel any gender bias there. I felt a tremendous amount of gender bias in the art world. It was a masculinized world. You know, not only did they were they not interested in computers, they were not interested in women who made anything. So um, there's that. The other thing about the computer graphics world, and I know I'm referencing the 90s here, but one of the pieces I did in the 90s was to look at how researchers in computer graphics imaged women's bodies, which we experienced all the time. And the majority, they were very, these, these women's bodies were very sexualized from a, a male point perspective. And they were just thrown at us that this is research and we have to use a sexy female for this. And so I documented and showed it at SIGGRAPH. And a lot of my responses from men at SIGGRAPH who were predominant in, in the research area was, oh, well, we really hadn't realized this. And that was showing what their biased view of women was. So I don't think it was up for grabs or wide open. I felt like in the community in Chicago, I got a lot of support. I, I got a lot of support, but I don't know that. And I certainly in the organization SIGGRAPH, they were willing to tolerate my, my critique of, of them in terms of how they dealt with women's bodies. A really powerful video. I, I saw it recently, and it, it's 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 shocking how uh, it's uh, women are portrayed by even by the SIGGRAPH members. I don't I don't think it was a wildly gender free area in the in the 80s. I just I just disagree with that. Um, but I do feel that the community in Chicago, where I was, was was very supportive. Welcome back, Darcy. Hopefully, connection's a bit better now. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes, perfect. Yeah. I wanted to add a different perspective. I don't know. I kind of this may be a totally different discussion by now, but uh, one of the things that I remember thinking in the '80s uh, was that up until about '85, we knew every artist who was using computers and their work pretty much, and in '85. That population so exploded with the piece, with the advent of the um, Mac having full color 
that things really did change. And a huge, huge additional number of artists started using these tools. Now, the other thing is this discussion today has really been very technology centric in many ways. There were so many different areas of art. We didn't say a word about gaming, which was huge. There was the whole, and then the ways in which artists were using these tools to make really interesting digital images. So we didn't talk about the difference between what was going on in terms of real-time graphics versus computed graphics. Another big thing is everybody that was using computers uh, was using systems that people were developing the algorithms for. I mean, yeah, there weren't software packages to buy, but there wasn't software. Everyone was writing what they needed. Now, many of the people writing that software were very seriously good programmers, and they were in uh, organizations, commercial and all over, technology ones, and in lots and lots of places. And artists like myself fit into that world without needing to program. It wasn't necessary. It didn't make sense for me at NYIT to try and wrote, write my own software when I could say to Tom Duff, I, could you write me a hack that would do blah, blah, blah? And he would literally walk by the computer, pass his hand over the keyboard, not even slow down and it would be done. It was clear to, so um, I wanna say the 80s, I think did change a lot because the tools became available to so many more artists and so many more people. And also, I started the program in Computer Art at the School of Visual Arts, I think it was 86. That was the first time a college for art had such a thing. And that proliferated all over the world very quickly. So the 80s saw a lot of change. I built my own computer also. I, had, I bought my own you know, frame buffer. I, had my own, I did all the hardware stuff. My partner did all the software stuff. You know, I had my own paint system written. This whole generative thing is such a, it's a piece, but it's, and it's getting a lot of publicity now, but it's so not the whole story. And I, yeah, that's a, a great point. And maybe we can bring in Dan because you mentioned, Darcy, you mentioned games and, and I, I love to bring in Copper and, and Dan and, and their contribution to video game art in, in the early 80s with grass and seagrass. Uh, I'd love to talk about that, about that topic. Sure. Uh, it was a very, very unusual place. And there was huge talent there. A lot happened in Chicago, a lot. Yeah, Dan, why don't you, why don't you jump in, please? Yeah, the um, it was an amazing time. And uh, uh, there was this large sharing community. Um, and so we got a lot of stuff done um, in terms of development. But the, uh, and I, one of the topics that was in the list that I was kind of interested in is this, is just the concept of generative art, which would be, is one of the themes and how it's, how, you know, how it's changing now. Um, I mean, if you look at this gadget, I taught a class, an art class that had the basic programming system. Um, and they would generate images. And of course, it couldn't do anything but generative art. It had no way to get images in. I mean, you had a joystick, but I don't know anybody that successfully drew with a joystick. Um, and so it was just con you know, confined, in a sense, to generative art. And that's one of the, I, I think that was one of the positive things about 
about the experience to have the essentially the limitations uh, where you simply head to. And then, you know, you jump to now and it's like uh, uh, me talking to, a, you know, to an AI system and saying, I, I want an image of a uh, Viking, a uh, large Viking family from Sweden having dinner. And then it produces this big thing, you know, with a lot of fish on the table, um, which is kind of, and that's obviously generative art too, but it's an entirely different experience for the person producing it. Um, and the, you, the generative art that was kind of done in the 80s in many respects um, went back to the platonic life of mathematics and things coming out of, you know, out of this other realm. And so now I, I don't know what it any longer means in terms of generative art because everything you do in art is rule-based and for large chunks of it anyway. It's great that Dan has this picture of the ballet art cade up there because, you know, that with an addition of a keyboard was, and I I did things on it. I was successful at using that 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 um, um, joystick for drawing and I did a piece called Skippy Peanut Butter Jars and I wrote the software to do it and it was painful, but I also came from a sculpture background and I was taught in sculpture to make my own tools. So I came from a different, a different, a three-dimensional place. The other thing is that there were all these, this video game industry in Chicago, and there was something about this arcade that just lightened up the whole light, your life. It was like, I could smile because I was now in graduate school and I wasn't really smiling as a sculpture student really what hadn't been appropriate. Um, you know, one could be silly because this device was silly. And because I had been exposed to computers all my life, this was like the first time I could kind of laugh at it, which humor is a part, a whole part of a section of my work. And I think that that went across a lot of the people using these devices because it was fun. I mean, it was fun having problems and it was fun making this work and you had lots of people to work with. And so that rich community made it all worthwhile. I mean, and lots of funny things happened. My favorite thing about making Skippy peanut butter jars with this unit was that my piece, which has nudes in it, low resolution nudes was banned from the from the grad show in the Sears Tower because it had nudity in it. I mean, it was really hard to process this, but it couldn't be in the show because it was in a public place. So the idea, and this goes to some of the other comments about where work was shown, is that these public places have these rules about what's art and the idea of banning a nude from an art exhibition is in itself quite amusing, especially when it's that low resolution. And I think that the matching of this video community in Chicago with this these budding small end computers was a really beautiful match. It just produced all sorts of different things you know, ranging from people ending up with things on pieces of paper, mostly video, but also interactive installations, because it was set up to do that. Fascinating that also in Chicago was was Sonia and, and what she was doing as well, uh, which is what also makes it such a remarkable. Uh... I agree. I mean, you know, at the same at the same time, and there was a crossover with some of those people, and sometimes it was really the butting of heads. 
you know, of what didn't. But if you think about the work that came from that group that had also originated with um, Xerox machines and the machines in the past to make generative things, there was a very rich history. You made me think quite a bit about the 80s that split on technology. I can remember, you're right, people were using Macs to generate really nice graphics. But in some ways, there was a split between group wanted to do high-end photorealism, and then the games would tend to be sprite-based, ve vector-based if they were in an arcade. There were MUDs. It was like Monkey Island. The games were pretty retro. They literally were at that time. There was there was a split between two two communities, I guess, you know, I was able to get into corporate environments, so I got access to mainframes. But you're right, there was there was a lot of other interesting work happening. And I think the the problem was after that with silicon graphics, anyone who wasn't within a corporation that wanted to produce photorealist work had to go and buy a silicon graphics machine, which would be about the, the equivalent of thirty thousand dollars now. You know, they people would literally have to take out a mortgage to buy a top end machine and, they, and silicon graphics really stifled they went bust in the end they really stifled creativity the commercial graphics were starting to take off but you know it's, it's an interesting it's interesting to recollect on that time i don't agree with that at all i don't think silicon graphics stifled anything i think the push in cigarette to, more, to get more and more realism and that was really the focus of all the papers accepted and all the things that were presented. And that was really focused in the film industry. And SGI was a big, good part of it. But for, for artists in the UK, it was very expensive. I agree. I agree with Arson on that. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we can jump to Mark, I would like to hear maybe some. I think I've ordered some graphics, so that I found that quite expensive. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask yeah. a question of Liam. Uh, you moved into rave graphics and doing that kind of work with music. Um, did you yeah. work a lot with video artists as well? Or was it mainly your own work as it stands rather than being, say, affected by the, the sort of video VJ culture that was going on at the time? This, was, this would have been probably 90s, wouldn't it? So slightly later. Yeah, so, early so, yeah, what I found with my work, there'd been a huge audience, comes back to the audience question, people that were going to raise in where huge warehouses and dancing like lunatics taking ecstasy watching my videos that was my audience drug taking rave people um and i had a big following and i didn't even know about it whilst i was you know within ibm so when ibm was scaling back on its scientific centers i got approached by different bands to produce all their graphics album covers I was directing videos and and then Universal Studios approached me because they thought my graphics looked like the thing. Would I produce a game for them? They gave me about seven million dollars to do that. You know, so it was a real Dr. Faustus situation. I sold I sold my soul to the music industry and film industry. It was very interesting. Um, but managed 13 years later to finally get back doing interesting work so you know rave music was very influential like color and the whole bit stuff i've done via done in vr later was very influenced by rave mm -hmm. and how you 
kind of deliver experiences which are sort of full on, you know, very, very direct experiences. But yeah, I I decided not to go back into the art world or into the academic world and just went into commercial the commercial space, which mm -hmm. was big pros and cons, you know, like with Stephen, when I restarted work with him, you know, 13 plus years later, we picked up the work like from the day before. She he said, what were we doing 15 years ago? And thankfully we'd written a book because all the software had deteriorated and we were able to go to the book and re-implement all the algorithms from the book that we'd written. What we didn't realize is lots of other people had done the same and produced their own graphics. Like a lot of generative art now, I can see hints of the algorithms in the book. So, you know, it's an interesting tale. So my, you know, I'm back doing art again, but I, you know, I lost you know, 13, 15 years just in, you know, dealing with Hollywood and the music industry. It was interesting but ultimately boring. Um, so I'm rambling on a bit there, but it's, it's a good question. In my audience comes back like with the Deutsches Museum, the Natural History Museum, they were the indication, the audience for this type of work is much bigger. It's mass market, it's not for an elite art market. Great response, William, and kind of that, the influence that rave aesthetics and kind of uh, electronic music has kind of had for digital art in general. So. If we can maybe push over to Mark, uh, maybe this is something we kind of heard from some past people in the call already, but a lot of you kind of come from painter backgrounds. You were pushing uh, paint on a canvas and then kind of transformed into working with uh, computers. Um, and maybe Mark, can you maybe expand more on how starting out as a painter influenced kind of your geometric background? Or you also kind of talked about you're predisposed to some of these images of like microprocessors uh, and computer parts that kind of influence a lot of your work. Um, maybe just expanding on that would be wonderful to hear about. Sure. I, I, I first, I just wanted to make a comment about uh, everyone's uh, dialogue here, and it's it's quite extraordinary how we all uh, started out, and there was basically no context uh, for what we were doing or very little context there, people had made used computers to make art in the in the 70s but we all sort of had to invent this all by ourselves and we all did it in different ways and uh, we all had uh different kinds of access to hardware and software and uh it's it's fascinating how we all got involved in this and sort of invented uh, all of this by in our own in our own ways. It's a perfect way to kind of wrap everything up and to offer a perspective after this amazingly interesting talk. But uh, again, Mark, uh, you 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 summed up really perfectly how diverse everybody's skills and talents and interests and hardware and software uh, lied. And, and yeah, I, I'd like to, uh, if anybody else would like to maybe have any closing thoughts. I just wanted to say, I think it was um, William who made this comment. I, I was really interested in it, just to say as it moves to the 90s, I think you said that you thought that SIGGRAPH started to change at the end of the 80s because the focus of all the research was expanding out. And 
Um, and then there was the, and then ICEA came about and, and um, Ars Electronica and some other exhibitions. And I think that those exhibitions had a stronger focus on artists. The focus was artists, whereas SIGGRAPH was this collective of, of research and art and everything. And I think that helped defocus what happened. And also academia started, you know, it, it eventually got PhDs in art and people could, artists could write papers and needed to get credit. And then you see that where SIGGRAPH is now versus where it was in the 80s where everybody was there. And that relates to what Darcy said about you like knew everybody, you'd heard of them, except the only correction to that I would say is, it was very American. And I, because I now spend a lot of time in Europe, I realized and my, through my reading that I was quite ignorant of things that were going on in Europe, Asia and South America and even Africa. And that that's been, and that was going on in the eighties. And I, was, I agree, it was very fragmented. I agree, it was very sorry. fragmented. Anyway, thank you very much. It was great to hear all of you talk. I, I, I really learned some things. Thank you. It was really a lot of fun to see. Thank you yeah, so fun. much, everybody. Uh, we can't really say it enough. It's such an honor. Really good, really good event. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank nice you, thank you everyone. See yeah, you soon. Thank you, Thank you, Darcy, Cooper, Jeff. Bye. Thank you guys so much. I'm sure we'll try to Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Yes. Take care. Nice to see you, Dan. Bye. Bye.